This Advent, if we're waiting for a God who's quick to anger and abounding in steadfast vengeance, our experience of God and neighbor will likely be more fearful than freeing. But if we're waiting for a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then we join with the eager psalmist who says, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. That's the Reverend Mac Dennis, and today he shares a challenging message of faith called What Keeps You Up at Night. I'm Dalton Rushing. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now, here's your host to introduce today's speaker. This is guest host Dalton Rushing, and today on Day One, we're delighted to have with us the Reverend Austin McIver Dennis, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Asheville, North Carolina, since 2016. Mac was ordained to the Ministry of Preaching in 2003. After five years as pastor of First Baptist Church in Mount Gilead, North Carolina, he studied at Duke University Divinity School, earning his THD in 2014 and teaching there as an adjunct professor until 2016. He came to Asheville after serving as interim preacher at Warrington Baptist Church in Warrington, North Carolina. He's the editor of The Luminous Word, Biblical Sermons and Homiletical Essays, an anthology of sermons and essays by the esteemed Old Testament scholar Ellen F. Davis. Mac, welcome to day one. Glad to be here. You've served First Baptist Church in Asheville as senior pastor for seven years now, How would you describe the church, its mission, and its members? Well, Asheville is an eclectic place, and the church has become uh, more representative of that over Mm. the last uh, probably 15 or 20 years, Mm. really. Uh, And it's First Baptist Church, but it's become an ecumenical congregation across the past generation uh, partly due to an open baptism policy, mm-hmm. uh, but also due to the quality of the, the mission and the ministries. People are drawn to uh, the, their effectiveness and uh, their central placement in downtown Asheville. It's a, it's a thriving city. Uh, it's a cosmopolitan city, uh, and the church thrives in that kind of environment. Um, any given Sunday, probably fewer than half of the members present are from the Baptist tradition. So uh, I get to preach, uh, or at least the challenge for me is to preach with size Mm. uh, and to preach what's been called a a generous orthodoxy. Um, Practically speaking, the church addresses uh, what we discern to be Asheville's most critical needs. Uh, And for us, that centers around housing, uh, homelessness, affordability, and uh, that, that's become uh, central to our mission. We're working on presently a, a massive community development project with our neighbors, the downtown YMCA of Western North Carolina. Uh, and we have come up with a concept that we've presented to quite literally the city council hmm. for hundreds of units of affordable housing, a new YMCA retail businesses and hopefully minority-owned retail businesses uh, and green space. 
we're, we're hoping that this will be really a walkable village that, uh, at which the, the church will be the center and uh, the animating center, uh, welcoming Asheville, blessing Asheville, welcoming children to uh, our child care center and to our Academy for the Arts. We uh, have a Thursday meal that we share with the community, and anyone's welcome to come. It's a family-style meal, uh, and it's really just a part of our mission of being downtown and being with our neighbors, enjoying their company. Uh, I think if I could distill the spirit of the church is First Baptist Church of Asheville doesn't know how to be church mm. without including all of our neighbors. We, we just can't be church without them. The neighbor, the stranger, even the enemy. We want to bless them all and be with them. And uh, that's, that's our delight. Sounds like the church really being the church. I want to ask now about your academic work. You studied at Duke Divinity School, focusing on homiletics and reconciliation. And both your preaching and scholarly work are concerned with faithful responses to division, conflict, and violence, certainly significant issues that the faithful need to deal with and live out in these times. How did this interest in reconciliation arise for you? So when I was pastoring my first church, it was um, I was in a, a rural community, and I there weren't many young people there for me to hang out with, uh, beautiful people, but you know, not, not a whole lot of folks my age. So when I wasn't out uh, visiting or writing sermons, I was reading a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book that still stands out to me from that time is Richard Lisher's The End of Words. Mm-hmm. It's a book about preaching and reconciliation, and it struck me like a thunderbolt. It, it, it helped my preaching imagination become much more fine-tuned. And I felt through that book that I really discovered how to preach the good news uh, rather than uh, lean into the moralism, which is probably uh, my, my great weakness in preaching at the time. Uh, you go back and look at my sermons uh, before that book, and there's a lot of we ought to, we have to, hmm. we should, we must, we need to. And, uh, and after that book, it was more like, look, Look what God has given us the mm-hmm. power to do. This is not on us. This We get to be with God and wonder about God and be empowered by the Spirit of God. And so I became fascinated with what uh, Dr. Lisher was doing. I appealed to him uh, in writing to have a conversation we met, and I applied to the program there at Duke, and he ended up being my advisor, mm. which really was very much a, a, a gift that continues to give me uh, great pride and, and energy for preaching. Uh, Rick's also become a friend over the years. And he guided me to Karl Barth. And so I read a lot of Bart and how Bart treated the, the language of the enemy. Bart doesn't use the word enemy in a, in a final sense. It's more of a flywheel word towards, mm. back towards neighbor. Uh, so he honors the word enemy, but finally we must recognize our enemy as uh, as Christ, as our neighbor in Christ. And I went from there to Greensboro uh, to study the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that they had there in the mid-20 aughts, uh, 2004 to 06. That followed a massacre, what's called the Greenboro, Greensboro Massacre, 
1979. Uh, the victims of the massacre, or rather I should say the survivors of the massacre, gathered and uh, constructed with help from Desmond Tutu and Peter Story from South Africa, uh, uh, the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission of its kind on mm. American soil. Uh, and uh, so 25 years after the horror of that event, they brought the community together to tell the truth about what happened, to offer opportunities to people whose stories had been uh, stymied or um, ignored, to share th their pain with the community, to lament before the community, and even to offer um, apologies and forgiveness. So uh, it was a healing event. Wow. Uh, that continues to, I think, pay dividends large and small for Greensboro. Uh, and the way that's translated for me in Asheville is to help me pay closer attention to the history there. What's mm -hmm. the context of Asheville? What's the racial history? Who has been disenfranchised? Who's been taken advantage of? And uh, right around the church, the story that's materialized um, has been how urban renewal affected congregation, the neighborhood we used to have, uh, but even more what it did to the historically black neighborhood across the street from us. Mm. Uh, so we're learning about what was taken from them, how their homes, their businesses, their churches, uh, even an architectural gym and community center uh, called Stevens Lee High School was torn down by white people and mm. bulldozers. And uh, people were racing to the site to gather a, a brick or a stone or some kind of memento from this, the center of their community's life. It mm. was traumatic. That's the kind of history that congregations like mine need to learn, are, are inspired when, by when they learn to address it in a healing way. And so I think what we have ahead of us is how to give shape to this affordable housing effort, this walkable village effort in a way that honors what black people in Asheville have gone through and provides pathways for new friendships uh, and new opportunities for folks who've had those taken away from them mm. over and over and over again. Uh, so th that is how my scholarly work really has flowed into my pastoral work. That's at the heart of what energizes me and gets me up in the morning. Uh, and it's been really energizing for my preaching as well. Mac, you've also put together a wonderful anthology of works by Ellen F. Davis, the noted Old Testament scholar. It's called The Luminous Word. Why was that an important project for you to undertake? So I became uh, friends over the years at Duke with Ellen, and uh, she uh, has taught me so much in preaching. And though I had classes with her, I don't know that I learned as much from her as I did than after she gave me a box of all her sermons mm -hmm. and said, hey, uh, go make this a book. <laughs> and as I read through her sermons, I, I realized that I was sinking deep, uh, not just into a, you know, a, a box of old sermons, uh, which is fascinating in its own right, probably to read any preacher in that way. But I was sinking deep in, into the Old Testament, into the gospel, and into a very refined approach to preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my students, uh, who also was one of her students, said, Ellen Davis never wastes a word. Hmm. 
And, uh, and I think Ellen would say them one of the great compliments she's ever been given after a sermon was uh, someone came up to her and said, your sermons are like an Armani suit. Hmm. Uh, they're so simple in a way, but so elegant. And that was a challenge to me to refine my own preaching. Mm. And when I'm writing the manuscript at first, I'm trying to think is, are there any superfluous words here or or thoughts? What can I, really, what can I cut? And how can I make this almost like a, a literary gem before mm. it becomes a spoken word? And that... Uh, learning from Ellen how to do that, also learning from Ellen not to be so dependent on illustrations, Mm. canned things, if you will. Mm. You know, you would never hear Ellen start a sermon with a joke. (laughs) Um, And I might start with humor, but I don't, you know, I don't start with a priest and a rabbi and an (laughs) imam walking to a bar sort of thing. So Ellen has really helped me refine my preaching uh, trust the text more and and trust God more. Mac, how did your call to ministry come about for you? Well, I'm one of those folks that uh, was struck by lightning. I mm-hmm. uh, started preaching at a, a young age. I was in youth group and church and, you know, speaking during mission trip reports and things like that before the whole congregation. And uh, one day, an elder member of the congregation came up and said, hey, you, you, you did a good job. That was good. You should do that again. Hmm. So I, I was very encouraged by that. And I preached my first sermon. The worship ended. I was out greeting people in a robe that was a size too big for me at the time hmm. uh, as a 17-year-old. I went back to the, the choir room took off my robe, walked out into a stairwell, and I had to hold on to the banister because I just swooned, uh, became disoriented. And I had what I call a a figment of intrigue about God's call on my life. Mm. And I I sensed deeply, and it was as though a, a voice said, and maybe it was my own inner mm-hmm. monologue, but it said, I want you to do this for the rest of your life. Wow. And so I've tried, I've tried to do that. that, but that's where it started. Wow. Well, today we begin the season of Advent. Mac, how do you personally approach this season of holy preparation for the coming of the Christ child? Oh, good grief. Advent, the first Sunday in Advent, is just a beast, hmm. you know, every, and I feel it every year. Sure. We're all groggy from the turkey and the leftovers, and it's the first Sunday back, if you're back in town yet, and what's waiting for us? It's, you know, Isaiah's tearing hmm. open the sky, and Amos is saying there's a lion, you better run, but don't run too far, you're yeah. going to meet a bear. And, and then in the New Testament, you've got John the Baptist wearing his camel hair and his wild eyed, and I'm sure he had really big, dark, threatening eyebrows or mm-hmm. something. And and we're just, I always feel like we're slamming into <laughs> this really uh, heavy Sunday. And and this time around, I wanted to uh, to take a different approach and say rather than uh, lean into the foreboding 
kind of threatening tone of so many of these passages. What if, what if I turn that upside down and, and really ask, who is it exactly that we're waiting for? And should we be bracing ourselves in terror for this person who loves us so much that he gave his life for us? Mm. That plus all that our nation, all that our communities have been through in recent years, and all that my, frankly, that my church has been through. Mm. This particular year, we experienced a tragedy. I lost my friend and right-hand associate pastor, Tommy Bratton, Mm. died suddenly of a heart attack. He was 52 years old. And so, and he was such a loving person. Mm. He was kind of a mystic in a way, but mm. he was a deep reader, so kind. And, and when he died, everyone in our community suffered wow. from, you know, the, the folks who live in gated communities to the custodians, white and black, rich and poor. Uh, we, we've all been grieving. And so I didn't want especially to start a new church year in December with dark skies and a mm-hmm. moon turned to blood and you know, falling stars. I wanted to start the church year with an invitation to enjoy the wait and enjoy this time of deep listening and introspection and to become kids again like we're waiting for Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Well, along those lines, your sermon today focuses on Jesus's teaching about the coming of the Son of Man in Mark 13. Would you read it for us? But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Mac, we look forward to hearing your message on this called What Keeps You Up at Night. Thanks for sharing it with us. It's been a joy. And if you'd like to listen again to today's program with Mac Dennis with an extended interview, You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app to Day One Weekly Program, or you can stream or download it on our website at dayone.org. And if you'd like a free printed sermon transcript, just call us at 404-815-9110.
The sun has long set, the day is done, you're in bed, waiting for sleep to come. But something's keeping you up. Maybe it's a problem at home, an argument with your partner, and at least one of you's gone to bed angry. Should I have apologized? No, he's the one who should say sorry. Or you're stewing about an upcoming exam, or reeling from a surprise medical bill, or worried sick about a child. Or maybe you just wish you hadn't said that thing you said in front of God and everybody at Thanksgiving. Will the Johnsons invite me back next year? Something at work, business hasn't been good. How are we going to make it? Or someone at work. Who does she think she is talking to me like that? And before long, our thoughts have unraveled into a maelstrom of worry. An hour passes, two hours, three. Now it's 2 a.m., and you're still tossing and turning. What keeps you up at night? Well, these days, what doesn't? I'll tell you what doesn't keep me up at night. Waiting for Jesus to come back. I'm sorry. I know I'm a Christian, and in this Advent passage, Jesus tells us plainly that we'd better keep awake, for we don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow. Look, Jesus, this is on you. If you'd wanted us to be that alert, you should have created us with more robust nervous systems. Are we really supposed to go through life bracing ourselves for a darkened sun and moon, falling stars, and shaking heavens? On the other hand, we might prefer the bizarre celestial signs to what we've been through here on Earth in the last several years. At least we don't have to quarantine for a solar eclipse. But how we answer the question of what keeps us up at night can tell us a lot about who we believe God is and what God is like. When we hear Jesus say, stay awake, you never know, is he inviting us to imagine God on the prowl waiting to pounce? Is Jesus inviting us to imagine God as a thief with a crowbar prying open our bedroom window in the dead of night? Is Jesus inviting us to imagine that on some existential level, the life of faith isn't so different from a character in a horror movie, ridden with fear that the boogeyman could pop out of a closet at any time? I'm reminded of the Christ-haunted preacher in Flannery O'Connor's wise blood, Hazel Motes, who sees Jesus move from tree to tree in the back of his mind, a wild, ragged figure, motioning him to turn around and come off into the dark where he might be walking on water and not know it, and then suddenly know it, and drown. I believe our response to Jesus' invitation to stay awake turns on who we think we're waiting for. If we're waiting for a God who's quick to anger and abounding in steadfast vengeance, our experience of God and neighbor will likely be more fearful than freeing, more harmful than hopeful. But if we're waiting for a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then we join with the eager psalmist who says, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. It makes all the difference if we're staying awake to welcome someone we love. My soul waits for this one in whose presence I long to be. I remember being abruptly awakened at 2 a.m. on a bitterly cold night. It was my wife. She said, wake up, it's time. Her water had broken. Our first child was on the way. How I'd longed across the pregnancy to know who this child would be. What color hair, what gender. Would they look more like their mother or more like me? 
And when they were old enough to cry after a bad dream, who would they cry out for first, mom or me? My imagination about this long-awaited child was about to become real life. But when that wake-up call came, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't terror-stricken. I was elated. I was filled with adrenaline and joyful anticipation as though someone had plugged me into a power grid and thrown the throttle-sized breaker from off to on, and this great coming fulfillment of love made me all flame. This advent, rather than imagining a masked marauder jumping us from behind in the dark, what if we imagined Mary instead, great with child, keeping watch over God's promise, lying awake and dreaming? Who is the psalmist but Mary, waiting for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning? Mary, the oil lamp by her bed, still wispy with smoke, lying on her side. Mary pondering in her heart this child she already loves, this child whose face she has not yet seen, but who has already inspired shouts of joy from her Aunt Elizabeth and gymnastic in vitro flips from Cousin John. This child whose head she has not yet cradled, but who has already inspired her to sing of the poor finding hope and the rich going away empty-handed. This child whose cry she has yet to hear, but who has called her imagination about God and God's love to expand exponentially with an algorithm of delight. This child whose eyes have yet to pierce her own, but whose tossing and turning in her belly she reckons as the best reason she's ever had to keep awake. What keeps her awake at night? This baby, this Jesus, just for the sheer anticipatory joy of it all. When Luke tells his version of this Mark passage, he makes it plain. Yes, when Christ comes, it will be frightening. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. But he also says, When these things begin to take place, stand up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Nevertheless, we must honor the threatening tone of this passage. How do we wait with such longing for our beloved when the sun really is darkened and the moon is snuffed out? I remember the testimony of Algerian Trappist monk Christian de Cherge, which he left to his family to be opened upon his death. After Christian was taken from his monastery on March 27, 1996 at 1.45 a.m. and beheaded by Muslim extremists, his loved ones opened his testimony to these words. My death will satisfy my most burning curiosity. At last I will be able, if God pleases, to see the children of Islam as he sees them, illuminated in the glory of Christ, sharing in the gift of God's passion and of the Spirit, whose secret joy will always be to bring forth our common humanity amidst our differences. Christian de Cherge stands in the chorus around God's throne, together with Mary and every psalmist, to sing with conviction, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. What keeps us up at night but waiting for God to tear open the heavens and come down? 
What keeps us up but a longing to come face to face with this God, who might be revealed to us at any time? What keeps us up but hearts aching to know God and to be fully known by God? What keeps us up but our tossing and turning with a burning curiosity to know even our enemies and be fully known by them? You who draw your breath in pain and in hope, what keeps you up at night? Isn't it the love of God within you? longing to find its fulfillment on the day of the Lord, when Christ comes in final victory, we feast at his heavenly banquet and find our rest in him. Amen. You've been listening to the Reverend Mac Dennis, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Asheville, North Carolina. For a free transcript of his message today, What Keeps You Up at Night, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day 1, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. And to listen again to today's program, read the sermon transcript, search the sermon archives, and much more, visit us online at dayone.org. Keep in mind that Day One depends on the generous donations of our faithful listeners. Please send your gift to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305, or donate at dayone.org. And thank you. I'm Dalton Rushing. Next week on Day One, we're pleased to welcome the Reverend Dr. William H. Williman, professor of the practice of Christian ministry at Duke University Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. His inspiring message is titled, Good News, God is Coming for You. Be sure to be listening next week on Day One. This is Dalton Rushing, and it's a real honor to serve as the interim guest host of Day One. As the pastor of a church, this ministry has meant so much to me over the years, and members of my congregation tell me they listen every week. If you appreciate this unique media ministry, I hope you'll consider making a generous donation. Your gift can help Day One share God's good news with hundreds of thousands of people around the world every week. Please, mail your gift to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Or call us at 404-815-9110 or give securely online at dayone.org. From all of us at Day One, thank you and God bless you. Now, our day one preacher, Mac Dennis, offers some final reflections on his sermon today, What Keeps You Up at Night? And Mac, I think each of us has found ourselves anxious in our beds in the middle of the night. You asked, what keeps you up at night? And you answered, well, these days, what doesn't? But you confess that one thing that doesn't keep you awake at night is waiting for Jesus' return, even though Jesus here told us to be alert for that time. Even so... How we answer this question of what keeps us up at night tells us a lot about who we believe God is and what God is like. Would you say more about that? Why does that reveal who God is to us? And what can we learn from that? 
So reading through all the scriptures, I I think, I suppose I've been told that one of the most common phrases in all of scripture is don't be afraid. Mm. Uh, And so I I wanted to honor the, the haunting tone of the text to be sure, but I also wanted to flip that upside down and and invite people to inhabit a posture of courage and anticipation, a really joyful anticipation, more than their than they would be if their primary posture was a fearful one. Mm. Uh, you know, I've again read enough scripture to know, and I suppose watched enough Star Wars to know yeah. that going down a fearful path just doesn't turn out well. Sure. It doesn't give rise to, I think, the the real genuine qualities of a of a human being. It doesn't equip us to grow in the fruit of the spirit. It tends to warp us, mm-hmm. and uh, it tends to, I think, manufacture uh, counterfeit versions of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. So. I think having a healthy fear of God is certainly part of my own faith. Sure. Um, and frankly, there are many days when I do want God to tear open the heavens mm-hmm. and come down. I want Jesus to show up. <laughs> you know, come on, Jesus. <laughs> what did you mean by soon? Yeah. Give me a break. It's been two millennia. Uh, let, let's get on with this. On the other hand, when I think about waiting and enjoying waiting, uh, that took me back to my own waiting for our firstborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes me back to the joys of Christmas as a child, waiting for Christmas morning. Uh, and just the the happiness that arises when you're waiting for someone, something that you long for, someone you love, that can really produce wonderful things in your life and bring out the best in you. Many of us have had our hearts and minds imprinted with an image of an angry God rather than a patient and loving God, usually from a very young age. And that makes all the difference for how we wait for Jesus. As you put it in your sermon, it makes all the difference if we're staying awake to welcome someone we love. And you imagined for us an expectant Mary, pondering in her heart and waiting for this child she already loves. She's awake at night for the sheer anticipatory joy of it all. What more can Mary teach us as we wait for the coming of Christ this Advent? So I wanted Mary to be a central focus in the sermon uh, because I do imagine her as a psalmist and also somebody who could have embodied uh, the psalmist who waits for the the morning mm-hmm. um, and watches for the morning. Then again, she's sort of tucked in there in a subversive way mm-hmm. because when you read Mary's actual psalm, uh, the Magnificat, boy, she's she's turning the world upside yeah. down, and she's called forth the earthquake. But then there, are, there is, on the other hand, this tender side sure. of, of her where in Luke chapter 2, she's pondering all these things in her heart mm-hmm. that she's seen and the shepherds have come and, you know, she's just got to be so tickled with the way all this is playing out. Uh, she gets to be at the at the uh, epicenter of history and she's a mother of a newborn. So 
there, there's all the coups and the the earthiness and the messiness of mm. that. And the, I imagine her cradling the Christ child with so much tenderness and gentleness while also thinking deep down, boy, he is going to change everything. And watch out if you're somebody who takes advantage of people. Mm. Uh, you're, you're about to get yours. <laughs> Mac, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? I hope that uh, anybody having heard the sermon will come away with it um, with perhaps a, a secretly growing joy mm. that maybe you can't even articulate across this coming season of, of prayer and introspection. Mac Dennis, thanks for being with us. It's been a joy. Thank you. Day One is the voice of America's historic Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever. Thank you.